Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network, our Sunday show. I'm the producer and host, Janine Mala. Uh, our producer emeritus is Rick Stizak. He's also the founder. And this Sunday, we're going to talk about a case that's really been in the headlines all over the country. Uh, you know, normally we like to say that we talk about stories that are either underreported or not reported at all. Uh, but that's not the case this Sunday. This story has been reported on quite widely, but since it goes back to my native, my home state of Missouri, and it's such an important case in terms of actual justice, true justice, that it needs to be um, needs to be talked about. So this is the story of Kevin Strickland. Now, Mr. Strickland had been incarcerated in Missouri for some 43 years for a crime, a series of crimes that he did not commit. Let that sink in for a minute. And apparently there was a recent change in Missouri law which granted prosecutors the possibility of vacating or basically throwing out a conviction that evidence surfaces that exonerates or proves that this was an innocent person that was wrongfully convicted. Now, this, this particular story about Kevin Strickland really not only speaks to the systemic racism that has become really, that is routine in our nation, not only here in Missouri, but nationwide, but it's also about how systemic racism and systemic um, uh, favoritism towards those that have money uh, has poisoned our entire alleged justice system. There needs to be some major reform. Um, and so Mr. Strickland was convicted for basically a crime that involved a couple of murders and home invasion and so on and so forth, uh, there was one eyewitness. And after this eyewitness testified, she came to realize that she was wrong, that she identified the wrong man in the lineup. And when she tried to come forth to recant her testimony, she was threatened by prosecution. So this is something that it happens all too often. You know, if there's a hero in the story at all, then the hero would be the Innocence Project, who once again was involved in Mr. Strickland's case. And basically, I, I, in my opinion, the Innocence Project is one of the few actual bright lights of justice that we have in this diminishing uh, representative democracy of ours. So basically, on November 23rd, a hearing was held based on this new Missouri law, and Judge James Welsh accepted the testimony that vindicated, um, that, that exonerated Mr. Strickland, and then Judge Welsh uh, vacated Strickland's conviction. And kept, Mr. Strickland was released a few hours later, all the while the Missouri Attorney General's office, under the stewardship of Eric Schmidt, had been fighting this tooth and nail. Now, one other provision you should understand about Mr. Schmidt, he is using this case, in my opinion, and several others for his own political advancement. Because right now, while he's still considered, while he's still the Missouri Attorney General, he's also running for the U.S. Senate seat that will be vacated by Roy Blunt. 
Okay, as far as I'm concerned, the pros- prosecution, the pros- well, let me go back. Prosecutors, there, there should be some sort of, of uh, agreement they have to sign where prosecutors should not be allowed to run for elected office until after 10 years from the time they leave the prosecution's office, just my opinion. So Mr. Strickland was sent home. He's living with family. He has no money, no home, nothing. Uh, Now, thank goodness for the Innocence Project and some other good Samaritans that have run a GoFundMe account that has, I think now at the point of 1.2 million. And in Kansas City, Missouri, where Mr. Strickland is from, uh, he was treated to uh, basically light the Christmas tree in Kansas City, Missouri, which is an honor. Um, You know, once again, it's obvious that the officials in Kansas City and in Jackson County wanted to correct the situation. But once again, um, this just shows how utterly and rapidly corrupt our criminal justice system truly is, okay? All right, so let's go to the, I I looked the story up and I think the best one was done by The Intercept. So this was published November 25th, just a few days after Strickland was released, um, from The Intercept by Jordan Smith. And the headline is, quote, Kevin Strickland comes home after 43 years behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. The sub-headline is, a new Missouri law empowers prosecutors to write wrongful convictions, but the state attorney general is intent on standing in the way. So then it goes into this, you know, the background behind this story. So the, the prosecution's main witness is a survivor to the crime, and her name was Cynthia Douglas. Now, Ms. Douglas... Um, passed away in 2015. So it was family members that brought, that continued to bring her concerns uh, to try and free Mr. Strickland. So the first line of the article says it all. Cynthia Douglas didn't recognize the man holding the shotgun the night her boyfriend and best friend were murdered. Okay, so right off the bat, the main prosecutorial witness, she didn't recognize the man holding the gun. Okay, so what happened was the background of the case is four men entered Cynthia Douglas's um, boyfriend's house. Her boyfriend was Larry Ingram. He had a bungalow in Kansas City, Missouri. Ms. Douglas was hanging out with Ingram and her best friend, Sherry Black, and, oh, I, I stand corrected. Her boyfriend, yeah, her best friend, Sherry Black, and her boyfriend, Jack Walker. Um, of those four people, Cynthia Douglas, Sherry Black, Jack Walker, and Larry Ingram. Only Douglas survived the attack. And it was an execution-style attack. Now, after this occurred, Ms. Douglas, Cynthia Douglas, told the police that she recognized two of her attackers immediately. And they were Vincent Bell and Kilm Adkins. But the other two men, because it was about four men, she didn't know who they were. In fact, of the other two men that Ms. Douglas could not identify, one was wearing something that looked like a sack over his head. And the other man who was holding a shotgun um, was a short man who had some facial hair. Um, 
Now, the facial hair is important because at the time, um, I'm sorry, at the time, uh, Kevin Strickland didn't have facial hair. Now, Mr. Strickland is a black man, and, um, you know, this is important, too, because, again, look at the difference between the two cases. During the course of this case, you will find that there was actually no physical evidence, not a shred of physical evidence, that actually connected Mr. Strickland to any of the crimes. Nothing. But he goes to jail and is incarcerated for 43 years, an innocent man. Then you look at the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, white boy, privileged. He went looking for trouble, and even though, and, and the judge, Molly coddled him in the Rittenhouse case, and even though the jury uh, acquitted Rittenhouse of two murders, the fact is Mr. Rittenhouse actually did kill two people. And if he hadn't been there with an AR-15, those two men would still be alive today. Did Rittenhouse get convicted? No. In fact, Mr. Rittenhouse is being celebrated by the biggest of the GOP. He's being offered congressional internships. Um, he's looking to go to school to become a nurse. What Mr. Rittenhouse doesn't realize is there is an ethical code for people in certain professions, and he should never be allowed to become a nurse. But that's an aside. So getting back to the Kevin Strickland story. <clears throat> the day that this happened, okay, the only witness, Cynthia Douglas said that basically there were four assailants that killed three of her friends. She was the only one to survive. She identified two of the assailants, two of the attackers, very, very quickly, Vincent Bell and Kill Madkin. She didn't know who the other two men were. One, because one was wearing a bag over his head, and the other one was short with facial hair. Again, significant because when they found, when they talked to, you know, again, Mr. Strickland has always been clean. Uh, Mr. Strickland was clean shaven. And most men don't grow facial hair that quickly. Anyway, the very next day, however, Cynthia Douglas changed her mind. And again, this is based on eyewitness accounts. And what you have to realize is that when you're looking at people, say, for instance, in a lineup, it's, it's very frightening. And the police do try to pressure you. Uh, years ago, as an example, when I was in college, I was walking through an area of South St. Louis with a friend, and we were mugged at gunpoint. They had a, a gun pointed in uh, my face and a knife to my friend's back. Um, we didn't have anything, and they left us alone, which is really weird to start with. I filed complaints, and they set up a lineup. And one man in the lineup looked like a younger version of the man that I recognized, of the man that did this. Looked like a younger sibling by a good five to seven years, like a teenager as opposed to a grown man. And I couldn't in good conscience say that was the person. But, again, lineups can be really confusing. So, anyway... Cynthia Douglas changed her mind the next day, and she told 
the police she thought the man with the shotgun might, knows the word, might, be 18-year-old Kevin Strickland, who she knew. He was an acquaintance, not a close friend, but an acquaintance. And she figured it out after she talked to um, her sister's boyfriend. So, again, when you're trying to piece together things that from memory, from an obviously very traumatic experience, you know, when this was going on, Miss um, Miss Douglas played dead, and this probably would save her life. Um, so she, you know, told, she said that the short one sounded like it could be Mr. Strickland. And he lived two houses down from, you know, from Bell, two houses down from um, her friend. And, but she also didn't know Strickland would have facial hair. It just wasn't something he went around with. But maybe she was coerced, whatever. Mistakenly, she identified Strickland. Now, in 1979, um, Cynthia Douglas's testimony in, at trial was the, the prime thing that sent him to jail. Again, there was no physical evidence at all linking Kevin Strickland to these crimes. Zero, zip, nothing. No DNA, no fingerprints, no, um, no gunpowder residue, nothing. Okay. So there was no physical evidence that tied Kevin Strickland to this crime. And then Cynthia Douglas died in 2015. But after this new law in Missouri had been passed, uh, recently there was a three-day hearing in Kansas City, and Cynthia Douglas's family and friends said that a short while after Strickland had been convicted, Cynthia Douglas realized she was wrong. And for many years, Cynthia Douglas tried to get people in authority to listen to her recanted testimony. She realized she had made a mistake, a horrible mistake. And, again, having been in that situation after a mugging, trying to – if you're looking at people, you know, in a, a police lineup, somebody can resemble somebody else. Like I said, that one man, he looked like the man, except he looked like the man would have looked maybe five years younger maybe 10 years younger even. And so, again, that's what you're dealing with. Um, so, in other words, Cynthia Douglas's mother remembered her daughter telling her, quote, mother, I picked the wrong guy. I picked the wrong guy. But in spite of that, Kevin Strickland remained in prison for 43 years. He maintained throughout that he was innocent. During the course of the of the case itself, he was off. Strickland was offered a plea deal, and he refused because he said, "I'm innocent. I'm not going to say I committed a crime that I didn't commit." So, after Cynthia Douglas passed away, the Midwest Innocence Project began investigating Strickland's case, and that also that also um, came to note. That was also noticed by the prosecutor's office in Kansas City. Now, the Jackson County Prosecutor, Gene Peters Baker, also became uh, convinced that Strickland was innocent, and she worked to overturn the conviction. And that's with her work that actually um, triggered this month's court hearing. So on November 23rd, 
The presiding judge was James Welsh, and he ruled that that Cynthia Douglas's recanting of her um, testimony, you know, was credible, and the conviction could not stand. A few hours later, Kevin Strickland was released. Okay, now this couldn't have happened until recently because in Missouri, prosecutors had no meaningful way to. Um, correct a wrongful conviction. Even if evidence came to light, this person was innocent. That also included in terms of death penalty cases. So you have to wonder how many, how many innocent people have been executed around this country but have been executed in the state of Missouri. I'd be willing to bet quite a bit. Okay. And the Intercept reported on that too. Um, <clears throat> there was another case of Lamar Johnson where, you know, Missouri prosecutor was, again, uh, was looking to reverse the conviction of Lamar Johnson, who was also innocent. They had no way to do it. There was no way to revisit a conviction that the prosecutor believed had been obtained wrongfully or in a corrupt manner, unless there had been evidence that exonerated this person. Excuse me, but earlier this year, the Missouri State Legislature passed legislature passed a law that that provided a process to right wrongful convictions. And Strickland's case was the first test of that law. So the prosecutor, the um excuse me, Jackson County prosecutor Gene Peters Baker was quoted in a statement saying, quote, to say we're extremely pleased and grateful is an understatement. This brings justice finally to a man who has tragically suffered so, so greatly as a result of this wrongful conviction. And yet, the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, according to the Intercept, quote, went to extreme lengths to stop this restorative justice, end quote. Now, one thing about Missouri's AG, he wasn't actually elected to office. He was appointed by our Trumper governor, Mike Parson. And now, just like Josh Hawley before him, he's using that office for as a political stepping stone and nothing else. Okay. So Schmidt has been fighting this. Um, Schmidt uh, had a um, Schmidt's office filed in court that Strickland was fairly tried and convicted, and he wrote, "quote For more than 40 years, Strickland has worked to evade responsibility for the murders." End quote. Keep in mind, there was absolutely no physical evidence that linked Kevin Strickland to the murders or to any of these crimes. Nothing. Would that stop Mr. Schmidt? No, of course not. And the fact that he's trying, he was trying to keep a black man in jail, that was only icing on the cake to Schmidt and this GOP of racist and neo-Nazis. I'm just going to say it. Now, according to the Intercept, quote, Schmidt has stubbornly defended a perversion of justice and in doing so has cast a shadow of the future of the state's new law designed to fix such miscarriages of justice. End quote. And that's a very important uh, statement right there. Because the Attorney General chose to fight this, he didn't prevail, but he sent a message. And that's the thing. This can have a chilling effect on prosecutors 
in smaller towns, smaller counties that don't have the budget or the resources to try and right these wrongs, especially if they know that the Missouri AG's office is going to fight them on it with their nearly unlimited budget. Eric Schmidt knows this, period. This is about prosecutors refusing to accept the fact that they made a mistake, prosecutors refusing to right wrongs, you know, prosecutors putting their careers ahead of justice. As far as I'm concerned, Mr. Schmidt knows he's wrong, especially in the Strickland case, is so egregious a miscarriage of justice. And Mr. Schmidt should be disciplined in terms of his law license, and maybe lose his law license. So let's go back to the beginning of the story, what happened in the crime. The day all this happened was April 25th, 1978. Okay. Douglas, Black, and Walker were um, it was late afternoon, and they, they met up, and they went to Ingram's house. These are the victims. They were all in their 20s. They allegedly were smoking pot, pot, drinking cognac, and watching TV. And there was a knock on the door. Two men, Adkins and Bell, who were 21, came to the house. Adkins grabbed a pistol that was on top of the TV and demanded money from Ingram. I'm reading straight from the intercept. Ingram apparently had crafts games in the house, and several days earlier, um, Adkins had lost money in a game and he thought the game had been rigged with loaded dice. Adkins pushed the others, the two others inside. Um, the short guy pointed a shotgun at Douglas, at Cynthia Douglas, and told her not to look at him. Then Douglas was ordered, Cynthia Douglas was ordered to tie up Walker. Then Douglas and Black were tied together. And the men kept arguing with Ingram. Ingram was also tied up. And... Basically, as time went on, Adkins started firing, killing Ingram, Walker, and Black. The man with the shotgun also fired the little short guy that will be mistaken for Strickland eventually. Um, and buckshot pellets, this is straight from the article, buckshot pellets tore through Black's head and into Cynthia Douglas's knee. And then Douglas, Cynthia Douglas slumped over and she played dead, which was smart. And then the men went through the house looking for things they left. Douglas got free. Cynthia Douglas went looking for help. When the police arrived, Cynthia Douglas was in a neighbor's living room. She's obviously hysterical. She's bleeding. And she told them that Bell and Adkins were responsible, but that she didn't know who the other two men were. Pretty clear to me. Cynthia Douglas repeated the information at the police station. By then, it's after 3 a.m. when she was asked to give her first formal interview. Now think about that for a minute. I know it's an emergency situation, but this happened early in the afternoon, okay? And at 3 a.m., she's finally giving her first interview. To me, it almost sounds like the police were treating Cynthia Douglas like she was a criminal. 3 a.m., you're not alert. You, you don't know what you're saying. So that's another inconsistency and something that was illegitimate in my opinion. Okay. So the very next day, 
Um, Cynthia Douglas, I don't know why, but she called the police, and then she said Strickland had been the guy with the shotgun. Could have been just that she was that exhausted. I really don't know. She had known Strickland casually. So when police asked her to look at a lineup, she identified him pretty easily. Okay, but this is all very loosey-goosey. Again, there was no, not a shred of any physical evidence that linked Strickland to anything. If he had been, if he had fired the gun, there would have been some sort, they could have collected some of his old clothes, there would have been some sort of gunshot residue. There was nothing. There was nothing because he didn't do it. But this was sloppy police work. So then Strickland was arrested and charged with murder. The state was initially going to ask for the death penalty. Gets weirder. Atkins and Bell, the two murderers, ran to Wichita, Kansas. They were arrested. Um, and they saw that, excuse me, that Strickland was arrested and, and kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, allegedly, Atkins told Bell, according to Kansas, uh, to quote, that's good because they started, because they starting off wrong. They picking up the wrong man, end quote. So Kevin Strickland was the first man to stand trial. Uh, the first time the state did it in February of 79, it ended in a mistrial because the, the only black juror refused to find him guilty. Now, after that, the prosecutor said that he had been, quote, careless in a court, according to a court filing and wouldn't again make the mistake of, quote, letting black people onto the panel. Now, the prosecutor assumed because that one juror was black that he he refused to convict Strickland out of some loyalty, some racial loyalty. Could have been that that one black juror saw that there was no evidence connecting Strickland to the crime. But keep in mind, this is still Missouri, and the systemic racism here is palpable. So a few months later, they had a new trial, all all white jury, and they found Strickland guilty after three days. The entire trial was three days, and they found him guilty, which means that their deliberation was, what, a few hours? And Kevin Strickland was sentenced to what's called a hard 50, which is life without the possibility of parole for 50 years. Okay? It's all lifetime, basically. So... After Strickland was convicted of a crime that the two perpetrators, um, was it Adkins and Bell, knew that he didn't commit, it spooked Adkins and Bell. So both of them pleaded guilty in exchange for a for 20-year prison sentences, even though they were the murderers. Okay. Now, during his allocution, I'm reading straight from the article again, Quote, during his allocution, Bell gave a lengthy account of the crime in which he named his three accomplices. Strickland was not one of them. Mr. Bell was quoted as saying, quote, Kevin Strickland wasn't at that house. I'm telling the state and society out there right now, Kevin Strickland wasn't there at that house. 
Okay. Instead, Mr. Bell said that he committed the crime along with Atkins, a 21-year-old named Terry Abbott, and 16-year-old Paul Holloway. Atkins, the other murderer, confirmed Bell's account in two separate affidavits. Okay. Mr. Abbott was never charged for any crime. At least in, well, let me back up. Abbott wasn't charged for this crime, but he is serving a life sentence in Colorado for an unrelated armed robbery. In 2019, Abbott told an investigator for the Midwest Innocence Project, quote, there couldn't be a more innocent person than Strickland. Now, 16-year-old Holloway was never charged, and his possible role in the crime was never investigated. My question is why? Why this gap in the investigation? Holloway also didn't respond to any questions from The Intercept. So think about what I'm saying here. The perpetrators, they made their deal. Atkins and, um, lost my place here. Atkins and Bell, two of the murderers, they made a deal for 20-year sentences in return for their testimony. And during a court allocution, Mr. Bell is going into great detail about what happened that day. Mr. Bell named his three accomplices. Strickland wasn't one of them. Mr. Atkins said the same thing. Then years go on, Cynthia Douglas's role it, it, the fact was her part in her testimony sent him to jail she just couldn't deal with anymore and she realized she made a horrible mistake a decade and so finally in, I'm sorry in 2009 Cynthia Douglas emailed the Midwest Innocence Project with the subject line quote wrongfully charged decade after that in 2019 after the Innocence Project asked the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office to agree to fingerprint testing, the shotgun that is. Let me back up here. Let me back up because I lost my place. In 2009, Cynthia Douglas, the only eyewitness, well, not the only, you got a major eyewitness, the one that her testimony sent Strickland to jail. She contacted the Midwest Innocence Project. She said that Strickland was wrongfully charged. A decade later, the Innocence Project asked the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office to agree to fingerprint test the shotgun. Also, the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office Office's Conviction Integrity Unit started its own review of the case. Okay. My question is, why wasn't that shotgun tested the fingerprints during the investigation phase and then presented at trial. So that meant this prosecution back in 1979 had zero evidence, nothing, other than one eyewitness. That's it. Think about that. So this past June, Baker, who's the lead prosecutor, um, stated that her office uh, had determined that Strickland was innocent. To quote Baker, quote, my job is to protect the innocent, and often prosecutors show hubris, right? You've probably seen me show some of that from time to time, and this was during a press conference. 
Uh, and today, my job is to apologize. It's important to apologize when the system has made wrongs and what we did in this case was wrong, end quote. And so the prosecutor in, uh, in Jackson County Baker saw that it was really, not only that this was wrong, but she also saw that it was her duty to see that this wrong, this egregious wrong, this horrible injustice was righted. But in Missouri, that's easier. Uh, in Missouri, that was difficult to do because state law had long precluded uh, allowing local prosecutors from taking action to overturn any wrongful conviction. And it didn't matter how much evidence was present to exonerate the person. And the Missouri AG, Eric Schmidt, as well as previous attorney generals, have fought hard to keep that injustice system going. So another case, Lamar Johnson, um, is probably going to be the next case as well. Uh, again, this is a case where Lamar Johnson's been in prison since 94 for a murder in St. Louis. No one believes he committed the murder, including the elected circuit attorney, Kim Gardner. But Eric Schmidt's office, the Missouri AG Eric Schmidt, is, is insisting that Gardner, that Kim Gardner has no power to help Johnson. And that case wound up in the Missouri Supreme Court in 2020 before this law was enacted. And the Attorney General's office argued that allowing a local prosecutor the power to reverse, vacate, or right a wrongful conviction had, quote, the potential to undermine public confidence, end quote, in the criminal legal system. Now, my question is this. Schmidt's argument is not actually based in law or legal precedent. The, it, he's arguing that allowing prosecutors to correct wrongful convictions when evidence presents itself, it, it shouldn't be allowed because that action has, quote, potential to undermine public confidence, end quote, in the criminal legal system. The issue of public confidence in the criminal prosecution process isn't the issue here. The issue is justice, period. Not covering the butts of politically ambitious attorney generals who use false prosecution, especially against people of color, to boost their chances of being elected in a verily racist state like Missouri. So the issue of public confidence is something the judge should have slapped down against Mr. Schmidt. The issue is justice. If evidence presents itself to write a egregiously wrong conviction, then you have a moral and ethical duty and yes, a legal duty to correct that injustice. Whether or not it chips away at public confidence in the system is irrelevant. But once again, Mr. Schmidt has a long history of making really frivolous cases. So, you know, and this has been the case in Missouri. It isn't just Eric Schmidt. Okay, for many years, Jay Nixon, a Democrat, was the Missouri Attorney General. Um, he took the same approach. He went on to become a governor. You know, this is, this is something that is ingrained. So there was... Another example of what the article calls is all-cost culture, winning at all costs. 
by prosecutors. In 2003, uh, there was the case of Joseph Amrin. He was on death row for a murder he didn't commit. In 03, the case, this, this appeal went to the Missouri Supreme Court. Um, the Attorney General's office then argued that Amrin, who had exhausted his appeals, should not should be barred, should not be allowed to, uh, to make another appeal from having his innocence claim considered by the court. Man's on death row, give and take between the the Missouri Supreme Court judge and and the prosecutor from the Attorney General's office, and it goes like this: um, one of the judges. This according to scholarvalpio.edu, one of the judges in the Missouri Supreme Court asked, quote, are you suggesting that if we find that Mr. Amrine is actually innocent, he should be executed? The assistant attorney general replied, quote, that's correct, Your Honor. Let that sink in. This is what the attorney general's office has done habitually for decades here in Missouri. Decades. This ethical bankruptcy on the part of prosecutors, especially on the part of the Attorney General of Missouri, is systemic, it's routine, and it's the true injustice. Okay? In Lamar Johnson's case, the Missouri Supreme Court did rule, um, according to courts.mo.gov, quote, that there wasn't a mechanism within Missouri law that allowed prosecutors to take legal action in local courts to undo an injustice that their offices were responsible for, end quote. Think about that. The courts are relying on the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. This idea that a man or a woman could be on death row Evidence has proven they are innocent, but because they have technically gone past all their appeals, it won't be heard, or if it's heard, they won't consider it, they won't change it, and then an innocent person will be executed because of the letter of the law. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And for the courts to say, well, we don't technically have a way to do this, that's cowardice on the judge's part. That judge had had some courage. They could have said, you know what? They can overrule me later, but I, I'm going to set this aside because this is an innocent person, and then I'm going to go to the press. But that's not what happened. So the chief justice in the Lamar Johnson case said, you need to go to the state legislature and change the law. So they did. Now, Missouri's new law basically works like this. Local prosecutors can file a motion to do what they call vacate a wrongful conviction. In other words, throw it out. Uh, and it happens in the court where the person was originally convicted. The reviewing judge is required to hold a hearing and decide, quote, whether there is clear and convincing evidence of actual innocence or a constitutional violation that would undermine the conviction, end quote. Sounds good, but there's a problem. The law also requires that the whoever the attorney general is, the attorney general's office for Missouri, 
is also given this requirement is also given the opportunity to be part of that hearing. They can question witnesses and argue their position. Um, and in this case, in Strickland's case, the Jackson County prosecutor, Ms. Baker, she was ready to file for a hearing in Strickland's case the day the new law took effect. And Eric Schmidt's office, they were ready to. In fact, they included an argument that, quote, the entire Jackson County bench, in other words, the judges of the Jackson County bench, should be disqualified because the presiding judge had told Baker's office that he agreed Strickland was innocent. To go on, it said, quote, in order to avoid even the appearance of partiality or impropriety, the Missouri Supreme Court blocked the local judges from hearing the case and instead appointed a retired appeals court judge, Welsh, to preside over the hearing. It didn't make any difference. Judge Welsh knew that he still ruled in Strickland's favor. So this goes on. It also, there's another section of this article from The Intercept titled Trauma and Memory. And we know if you've gone through a traumatic uh, event, yes, your memory is affected. You will remember more as you calm down as more time passes. So Strickland was um, November 8th. Reporters waited for Strickland, now 62, to arrive at the Jackson County Courthouse. Strickland's a little guy. He's like my height, five foot three. And he's in a wheelchair now because he has spinal stenosis, so he can barely stand except for very short periods of time. Um, the next two days, uh, the prosecutor for Jackson County, Baker, and lawyers for Strickland, they called multiple witnesses. Um, and they took aim at what's considered the heart of the case, which is the eyewitness identification by Cynthia Douglas back in 78. This included friends and family um, who all said that Douglas knew she identified the wrong guy. And for many years, she tried to reach out to people in power to correct the situation when she realized she had made a horrible mistake. Unfortunately, Cynthia Douglas passed away in 2015 at age 57. But Douglas's older sister, Cecile Simmons, testified that her sister had reached out to all these different officials, which also included now deceased former Governor Mel Carnahan, and get this, former Jackson County prosecutor turned U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, but no one listened. And I know Claire. I don't know her well, but I do know her. And She's, you know, retired now, and she, she's, I think, on NBC as a political commentator, and she's been painted as this good guy, Democratic centrist. But when she was approached by a witness and said, look, I made a horrible mistake, and she had been a former Jackson County prosecutor, she refused to listen to Cynthia Douglas. That speaks to a certain moral bankruptcy and ethical bankruptcy on Claire McCaskill's part. It just does. Um, given her politics, I'm not surprised because Claire McCaskill likes to pretend that she's this progressive on these social issues, but she had all the in the world. 
white woman from a family that was comfortable. She loves to play like she had such a hard time. It's not true. Okay. She didn't listen, even though she had a professional responsibility to listen. That's what happened. Cynthia Douglas told Simmons, her sister, about the fact that the police had pressured her to identify Strickland and that the police said that if she didn't cooperate, all the perpetrators could go unpunished. Simmons also said of her sister, Cynthia Douglas, that since Douglas tried to recant her testimony to the prosecutor's office, and for her trouble, she was she was threatened with arrest and perjury charges. And again, my question is, why are these prosecutors, why aren't the prosecutors facing criminal charges of witness tampering? When somebody says, look, I made a horrible mistake, and we know eyewitness testimony isn't really that accurate, truth be told. All they cared about was keeping their win, and they threatened a witness with a, uh, with perjury, perjury charges. Again, there is an ethical bankruptcy in far too many prosecutors' offices. Okay. Cynthia Douglas had a childhood friend uh, named Eric Weston, and Weston is the publisher of the city's 102-year-old black newspaper, The Call. And Weston said that Cynthia Douglas had approached him many times during the 2000s, just really troubled, trying to decide what to do to correct it. Um, you know, this is this is what was going on here. Um, she finally filed some sent some emails through her employer. She used her work address to write to the Midwest Innocence Project. Um, and there was more evidence of Strickland's evidence besides the witness testimony that Douglas had basically related to multiple people. You know, Cynthia Douglas told the police that the guy with the shotgun had hair that was natural. Natural, for those of you that aren't familiar, means like an afro, an afro. But when they picked up Strickland next morning, his hair was done in what has become his signature braid. Okay? And I have friends that do braiding. Those braids take a lot of time to create. It's not something that would have been done overnight. And you can tell when braiding is new anyway. Then there was a shotgun. It was recovered in a ravine near a Pepsi plant later. It had fingerprints on it. Guess what? Remember, they finally, years later, had allowed fingerprint testing on, on the shotgun? They didn't match Strickland. In fact, there was a fingerprint expert that present at the attorney general's request. This attorney general witness, fingerprint expert, reviewed some 60 late, what they call latent prints that were recovered from the crime scene. Not a single one belonged to Strickland. Not a single one. All these lawyers are saying, yeah, this guy, he's innocent, okay? This was a bad conviction. Okay? Um, so, 
The three assistant attorney generals on the case kept attacking them. And this is on Eric Schmidt's watch. They made several outlandish uh, accusations. They claimed that the email that Cynthia Douglas sent to the Innocence Project was fake and that her work email could have been spoofed, but they weren't clear who did it. And they were basically implying that Strickland was behind this, behind this fake email sent to the Innocence Project, even though Strickland was in prison and had no access to a computer. And one thing I like with this Intercept article, they name these attorney general office attorneys. One of these horrible attorneys is a woman named Christine Krug. She tried to damage Eric Wesson's credibility. Keep in mind, Wesson is the, you know, the man who heads this 102-year-old black newspaper. And um, she basically kept nagging on the fact that um, Wesson had done time in prison decades ago. Okay, so basically Ms. Krug from the prosecuting from the Attorney General's office was slandering by implication Mr. Wesson. Another one of the AG lawyers was Greg, Greg Goodwin, and he implied that um, Simmons, you know, Douglas's sister, had a motive to lie, um, you know, because she had lost friends over Douglas's role as a witness for the prosecution. So. They're not only, these AG attorneys under Eric Schmidt, they're not only slandering these people, but they're, they're also saying they're stupid, okay? Mr. Goodwin also insinuated that Simmons was, quote, inclined to help Baker because she was somehow dazzled by meeting an elected official. Really? Mr. Goodwin is stupid, in my opinion, because guess what? Since when is a black woman... Uh, dazzled by meeting a white prosecutor in Jackson County in a state that has virulent racism. Unbelievable. So, you know, this is, and, you know, Simmons, okay, so let me go on ahead. I lost my place here. Krug was trying to undermine this retired psychology professor that was testimony, testi I'm sorry, that was testifying. Uh, Dr. Franklin specializes in memory and eyewitness identification, which tried to undermine. Franklin reviewed the case uh, per the request of the Midwest Innocence Project. And Dr. Franklin concluded that Cynthia Douglas's identification of Strickland was, quote, extremely unreliable. And Franklin made clear in her testimony that she had taken Strickland's case with Midwest Innocence Project pro bono, okay? In other words, Dr. Franklin received no money for the testimony. But Prosecutor Krug went nagged about how much money Franklin usually gets paid for expert consultation. Um, and it's just witness badgering, but it fell flat with Judge Welsh. So, you know, Strickland did testify, 
He said, quote, I had nothing to do with these murders. By no means was I anywhere close to the crime scene. And the article goes on to say that, you know, after Strickland was charged, he was offered a plea bargain. But as I said before, he didn't take it, even though Strickland knew he was facing the death penalty. And Strickland's response was that he just he felt he couldn't take responsibility for a crime he didn't commit. He actually believed that the system worked. And he believed he'd be vindicated. Um, well, he was 43 years later. You know, you could argue that Kevin Strickland wasn't, not only was innocent, but he was an innocent who naively believed in a system that is unbelievably corrupt from start to finish. Okay. So, once again, this is what was going on here. Um, you know, this is, and there, there's more here. So, for instance, um, some prominent attorneys in Missouri are already saying that the Attorney General's office has too much power, especially in this instance, to uh, stonewall a process which is supposed to right a wrongful conviction. Um, so, you know, in Strickland's case, the two men responsible for the murder um, are in are in prison. They've admitted their guilt. Um, so let me. I'm sorry. No, this is this is Johnson's. I'm sorry. Let me back up here. There's this article goes back and forth, and I'm sorry. Um, I'll, I can admit when I make a mistake. So, um, so this is the Strickland case. Okay. So Strickland, to make matters worse, though, how petty the Attorney General's office is. Um, you know, Strickland, he was watching TV when a news alert came across the screen uh, about Judge Welsh's ruling. Um, all the other prisoners started cheering because they knew this was an innocent man. Um, Strickland's brother told the Kansas City Star that, you know, he was, quote, just galactically overwhelmed. Um, but, you know, Strickland is still going to battle things. Missouri law does allow compensation for people that have been wrongfully convicted, but only if they were exonerated by DNA. And that's only 19% of almost 3,000 exonerations nationwide since 1989. So there's no way for the state to pay any sort of reparation. Looks like we have a caller here. They're going to wait a minute. Um, so there's no way to repair the damage. And then because the Attorney General's office stalled the release, Strickland's release, and then blocked local judges from, from considering it, Strickland just, just had pettiness to it. Kevin Strickland was unable to see his mother before she died, and he was not allowed to attend her funeral. Okay, so Strickland's staying with his brother right now. The Midwest Innocence Project has set up a GoFundMe campaign to pay for basic needs. Um, and, 
you know, the quote in the article is, quote, this joyful day is dimmed by the realization that he exits prison with nothing. And this is really speaking to equal justice. I'm going to see who this person is. Let's see now. Okay. Hopefully I don't disconnect them. Hello? Yeah, my name's Joe. My name is Joe. So I know okay, nothing Joe. about the Strickland case. Okay. I know nothing about the Strickland case, but I saw the hashtag about the Innocence Project, and the Innocence mm-hmm. Project has a good reputation for um, letting people who are incarcerated um, unfairly, unjustly, uh, for getting them out. But my question is, when I was reading your description page, and I was reading whatever I knew about the case from your page, down Uh near the end of it, it says that the Attorney General is a Trump ally. So I want to know what the connection is between Trump and this case. Well, it deals with the virulent racism in this state. I don't know if you're in Missouri. I'm in Missouri. And Mr. Schmidt, like our governor, Mike Parson, are both Trump allies. And like Mr. Trump, they have pushed uh, to stop any sort of correction of wrongful incarceration or wrongful conviction. Um, you know, it is safe to say, and maybe well, maybe a little hyperbole on my part, that it's safe to say that Mr. Trump stood for so many things that were the epitome of racism, uh, xenophobia, injustice, and Mr. Schmidt slavishly believes in Mr. Trump. In fact, Mr. Schmidt, the AG, was one of the lead attorneys that went to court to try and stop uh, the counting of votes leading up to January 6th, the counting of votes by the Electoral College. Mr. Schmidt, in my opinion, is not an honest provider of justice. Well, there are a lot of corrupt politicians in justice. The thing is, Again, um, what policies did Trump institute that show that he was xenophobic, Islamic phobic, or racist? Oh, honey, you know what? There's so many. It, it, you can just look at January 6th. But you know what? The fact is this. I pay for this time. You don't. And this is not that kind of show. Oh, so, so you, you can't admit to... that you're wrong. Even though you say so, no. you can't admit it. You don't want to investigate it. All right, fine. No problem. Uh, Oh, no, Stick no, no. I am investigated, bias. but you're not going to steal my time is what's going to happen. Oh, not yeah, with yeah, propaganda. Yeah. Right. No, I'm not. No. Okay. Joe was there just trying to cause trouble. He was from an eastern, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, area code, and he was he was confusing this broadcast with some of the others that allow these right-wingers to monopolize time, speak over people. Look, bottom line is this. Mr. Schmidt, the Missouri AG, basically has been a Trumper from day one. And, and contrary to what Joe is saying, yes, there's plenty of evidence of xenophobic policies followed by the Trump administration. I've written about it. We don't have time in this broadcast to go through all of them. And furthermore, the fact that he keeps questioning that, seriously? You don't have to look any further than Charlottesville, than the January 6th insurrection, that the camps 
that put babies in cages. You don't have to look very far to see xenophobia under the Trump administration and, yes, the GOP of Trump. But I'm not going to entertain that type of right-wing crap. Not at all. You know, this is what they do. I'm talking about a different situation here, and he was going to try and trip me up. And, baby, it ain't happening. No effing way. Yes, I can admit when I'm wrong. But when we only have so many minutes left of the broadcast, no, I do not have time to do it justice right now. I have researched it before, and guess what? Thank you, Joe, because I intend to do a show totally dedicated to the xenophobia that was instituted during the Trump administration and continued by the GOP of Trump. So thank you, Joe. You know, they always say, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. Well, baby Joe, you're about to get it and then some in spades. Don't play that game with me, boy. And I know it was a white boy, and yeah, I called him boy. I will not be silenced by Trump scum. Absolutely not. The whole world has seen the hatred, the white supremacy, the neo-Nazism of the GOP of Trump. There is no question here. That's as effing stupid as questioning the Holocaust when the Nazis filmed everything. I am not one of those fainting progressives in the the Al Gore, Barack Obama part. I am an aggressive progressive. You want to throw down, Joe, rhetorically speaking, that is? I will knock you flat with facts, with logic, and with argument. Don't go there. This is why I don't take many calls. Because they're totally, de- they're totally determined to, one, steal the time. I pay for this time. The program pays for this time. These people calling, they're, they're just, put bluntly, they're freeloaders. I don't normally open it up to questions. It's not that kind of show. And when I do... The few times I've done so, I've announced at the beginning of the show that maybe the last 10 minutes or so. And at that point, you may call if I make that announcement. But it's not that kind of show, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let some Trump freeloader steal the time that I pay for. Not some privileged white boy. No. We have a problem in this nation. It's with systemic racism, systemic misogyny, systemic homophobia, and so on and so forth. And it is leading up to looking a lot like a resurgence of Nazism. And yes, as a Jew, I can say that. As a Jew lost family in the Holocaust, I definitely can say that. No white Christian male has the right to say that. Not and, be, not and be shocked if they get a savage rebuttal, because they will. So Joe, who was too cowardly to actually list his real name, I don't hide behind a pen name. My name's on the show, Janine Mala. But Joe, I don't even know his name was really Joe. So 
but he was too much of a freaking coward to, to even list a fake last name. And then he's going to try and mansplain to me? Oh, hell no. Hell to the no. Not happening. Not happening. So I, I apologize to all of you that I'm kind of blowing up here. But I do not tolerate fools or bigots uh, calmly. I just don't. I won't start the fight, but I will finish it. And good old Joe trying to take advantage of the fact that most progressives will try and be reasonable and say, well, I need to research this, which is true. And to say I had a little hyperbole in the introduction is not the same as saying, that I lied. Okay? Eric Schmidt is a Trumper. He, I'm not, and he is one of the, he's the, one of the lead AGs that filed frivolous lawsuits to keep the Electoral College from counting the votes. Eric Schmidt was integral in the stop to steal, at least through that part of it. Now, I don't know if he was involved in other parts of Stop the Steal, but in terms of the court cases, most definitely. In it, up to his eyeballs, along with the Texan, Texas AG. So there's no mystery here. Public documents. So it's not a far cry to think that, hmm, Mr. Schmidt probably wouldn't like a new law that exonerates certain types of people he doesn't like, such as an elderly black man who was wrongfully convicted. Now, getting back to this, we're supposed to have equal justice under the law, but we don't. Not at all. As I've said on the show before, you know, the police to certain populations present a mortal threat. If you are a person of color, if you are an uppity woman, if you are progressive or a journalist, not a stenographer, but a real journalist, Um, If you're a religious minority, when you see a cop, you hold your breath and pray that they're not going to attack you. That's just a fact. Just is. You know, the police are there to basically support the wealthy and white Christian male privilege and nothing else. Now, that's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. So there is plenty of evidence to support it. We don't have time to go into it today. And before I go into things, I like to be prepared. So I looked at this this organization, it's not-for-profit, that really asks a very important question. What would equal justice under the law look like? Because Lord knows we don't have it in this country. And this group calls themselves Equal Justice Under Law. They're a nonprofit law law organization, and they're dedicated to fighting for equality in the criminal system, as well as ending this systemic poverty across the nation. They concern themselves with, quote, impact litigation, policy reform, um, and public outreach, end quote, and they also seek, quote, radical reform of systemic inequalities in our justice system, end quote. And I'm going to read straight from their mission statement. Quote, 
equal justice under law is a nonprofit law organization dedicated to achieving equality in the criminal system and ending cycles of poverty across the nation. Through impact litigation, policy reform, and public outreach, we seek radical reform of systemic inequalities in our justice system. We believe the justice system should improve well-being across society, but repeatedly it creates cycles of poverty, ruins lives, and makes everybody less safe. When counterproductive laws trap millions of people in poverty every year, communities suffer. A justice system premised on equality should promote opportunities for all, including housing, employment, and family relationships. Our mission is to end inequality in the justice system. Since our founding in 2014, we have developed special expertise, citing the use of pre-trial money bail, wealth-based driver's license suspensions, debtor's prisons, abusive private probation practices, and other areas of wealth-based inequality in our justice system. Equal justice under law works to create lasting improvements in our justice system to end wealth-based discrimination and create a justice system that is truly equal, end quote. That's a movement I can get behind. They quote Dr. Martin Luther King when he said, quote, we are not makers of history. We are made by history, end quote. And then they give a history of, you know, what this is about, um, and including how the 14th Amendment is so incredibly important. Um, they also trace the history of equal justice under law, that the actual origin of the, the saying and the, the idea, and the origins go all the way back uh, to the end of the Peloponnesian War at 404 BCE. Um, Greek general Pericles gave this really famous speech stated, quote, if we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences, end quote. This idea is going to slowly morph over the centuries into this equal justice under law. Pericles also proclaimed, quote, class considerations are not allowed to interfere with merit, nor again does poverty bar the way. If a man is able to serve the state, he is not hindered, by the obscurity of his condition, end quote. Think about that. Poverty does bar the way to justice. Right? Not just poverty, if you're just barely middle income, obtaining a lawyer and defending yourself in court, or even if you just have a short sentence, say of a year or two, it destroys lives. You've lost your home, You've lost your job, and it traps you in this cycle. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. So this group also talks about the judicial oath that, ironically, each Supreme Court justice has to take. And there's one statement from the oath that mandates that every justice on the Supreme Court should, quote, administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, end quote. That's very important because right now on our Supreme Court, we have multiple conservative justices that don't do that. You know, we don't have to look any further than the late Antonin Scalia, who gave us the infamous and really asinine Citizens United decision 
where they said money was speech and corporations were people. Now, what Scalia was doing was essentially taking taking to task the legal, the logical format. You know, the logic of his format may have been, you know, perfect. But the whole thing's based on a false premise, and Scalia knew it. So this group's also explaining that not only should equality and justice complement each other, but they should also serve the same purpose, which they presently do not. They go on to say that, quote, equality and justice both represent egalitarianism and fairness. Quote, without equality, true justice cannot exist. And without a way to deliver just verdicts that ensure impartial treatment, the meaning of equality is nothing more than an unenforced altruism, end quote. I couldn't have said it better. And this is where we're at, people. Okay? So the Kevin Strickland story is a morality tale for our times. An innocent man was wrongfully convicted based solely on eyewitness testimony, the eyewitness testimony of one witness who, by her own admission, had been coerced somewhat by police. When she went to the prosecutors to recant her earlier testimony, she was threatened with criminal charges herself. When she went to political figures, such as Claire McCaskill, she was rebuffed. This systemic, and it's not just systemic, it's a routine. Criminality on the part of prosecutors and police must stop. While Kevin Strickland suffered in prison for 43 years, that little brat, Kyle Rittenhouse, has been wrongfully acquitted and feted, even celebrated by a GOP which has become the party of neo-Nazism, in my opinion. Now, I'm aware that in the Rittenhouse case, they have an open carry law in Wisconsin. It's true. And if Rittenhouse had had his gun properly holstered or slung across his back and refrained from pointing the gun at people, then perhaps that would have been okay. Perhaps he would have been within the law. But an open carry law does not allow you to actively point your weapon at people. That's where Rittenhouse broke the law. And that resulted in two murders. Again, <coughs> Strickland was kept in court, I mean, was kept in jail, in prison, for over four decades because the judges kept slavishly obeying the letter of the law, even though the letter of the law pushed an egregious injustice. And totally neglecting the spirit of law, which says, if he's innocent, he should be released. We saw <coughs> Attorney General's office that in another case in 03, where I was asked by a Missouri Supreme Court judge, so if this person's on death row and they're actually innocent, the execution should go on, and the AG's office said yes. This is ethical bankruptcy. This is what has to be reformed. And as for little Mr. Rittenhouse, again, um, when that judge threw out the weapons charge, 
He knew what he was doing. Because if the weapons charge had remained in that case, and Kyle Brittenhouse broke the law in that instance that resulted in, that led to some murders, then Kyle Rittenhouse could not have claimed the self-defense, uh, self-defense as a defense. It would have been forbidden. So I'm glad that um, members of Congress are looking into, you know, having DOJ investigate that that instance. <coughs> Personally, I, I'm I'm so grateful that Mr. Strickland has been released. And I am grateful that money has been raised for his benefit. And I don't know what we can do to apologize to this poor man. You know, God bless him. But as a nation, we're lost. And as a nation, we're drowning in the poison of white supremacy and neo-Nazism that's hiding behind the letter of the law. Knowing full well that the letter of the law has perverted the spirit of the law. It wasn't long ago when slavery was the law of the land. And helping a slave escape was considered illegal. Just because something's legal doesn't mean it's ethical. And doesn't mean that it represents justice. Okay. So now we're going to get to our new feature. I wish I had a drum roll effect, you know, because I'm not really, I'm barely learning this tech. So drum roll, the jackass of the week. We have two of them this week. I just added one. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt and his entire office of attorneys, because Mr. Schmidt has politicized the AG's office to an unprecedented level. And this is all for his own political aspirations as he runs for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by Roy Blunt. Mr. Schmidt played a pivotal role in Kevin Strickland's case because he worked so hard to keep Mr. Strickland in jail. The fact that there was no physical evidence, not a shred, that ever linked Kevin Strickland to the crimes was irrelevant to Mr. Schmidt. Because Eric Schmidt must pander to his bigoted minion to celebrate the wrongful conviction of another black man, period. My opinion, I'm entitled to it. Schmidt claims to be pro-life in his campaign literature as advised for that U.S. Senate seat, but he knows racism sells to his supporters. Schmidt's involvement in the frivolous lawsuits that sought to stop the Electoral College going forth as far as I'm concerned, I'm not a lawyer, should have been viewed as criminal. Just should have been. And so Eric Schmidt is one of our jackasses of the week. And I just added a new one. Our new jackass of the week is Joe. Good old Joe, who calls into the show with his white, I don't know what religion is, his white male privilege thinking that he was going to trip me up. And the fact is, when I argue, I like to be prepared. But when I allow a caller on, that is a courtesy. I'm paying for the time. And too many of these callers 
they think that they can just monopolize the time and everything's just fine with that. And they're used to progressives that allow them to walk right over them. I'm not one of those progressives, baby. I'm an aggressive progressive. I won't start the fight, rhetorically speaking, but I will finish it. Again, rhetorically speaking, I wouldn't want good old Joe to misconstrue with that little pea brain of his. And, again, we don't even know what Joe's real name is because he was too cowardly to say. Once again, um, this is, you know, what these people do. Their white fragility, they can't face the idea that they could be wrong. And, you know, when he's basically defending Trump and defending the GOP of Trump, it's indefensible. You know, Joe just needs to open a newspaper during the time of the Trump administration. It's all there. But then that would require that good old Joe and his other supporters would actually have to go to the wizard and not only get a brain, they'd actually have to get a conscience. And I doubt if that's ever going to happen. With that, I say good night and, oh, God bless us. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.